0: Well, I'll go ahead and say it again, a happy Resurrection Sunday, and He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. And today, of course, is Easter, the most significant day on the Christian calendar. And for Christians, every day, in a sense, is just as significant because we are to remember and worship and live in light of Christ and His resurrection every day. And if today is the only day that you reflect on the resurrection, you've got other problems, but <laughs> at the same time, the Resurrection Sunday gives us a special opportunity to bring the resurrection and thereby the foundation of our faith into sharper focus. Remember all that God has done for us through His Son, Christ, and specifically His death and resurrection. Although you wouldn't know it by looking around anymore, that today was a Christian holiday. Over the years, Easter has morphed and become almost unrecognizable as a Christian holy day. It's been secularized and commercialized just like Christmas, which makes perfect sense, of course, because as the culture gets more and more secular, they want the fun of the holidays without all the spirituality stuff. And so Christ's resurrection has been dropped from Easter, just like his birth was dropped from Christmas. And now in his place stands the Easter Bunny. And millions of kids today will wake up in America and worship in the sense of their adoration and affection this creepy rabbit that lays eggs, <laughs> and sometimes filled with candy. And it, I've always thought it strange because rabbits don't lay eggs. <laughs> and where does the plastic grass come from? <laughs> but parents have long since used Easter as a means, another means to control their children, telling them, if you're good, Easter Bunny will bring you some candy on Sunday. And I've got to say, the fastest way to take over a holiday or a holy day and secularize it is to just give kids presents or candy on that day, and it's game over. I mean, you tell your kids, either in word or deed, hey, Christmas is the day we remember the birth of Jesus. But it's also the day you get tons of presents, which which is going to win. Which is going to win their heart's affection. Or on Easter, you say, today's the day we remember the resurrection of Jesus, but you also get tons of candy. I mean, What's going to win there? And you get the point. And we're we're not going to rehash this. We've talked about these issues in the past. Candy's not evil. Presents aren't evil. Even secular traditions like dying eggs, different colors, it's not inherently evil. The problem is when these things crowd out God and when God is missed and forgotten. And for those who claim to be Christians, nothing is more important than the Lord in our lives. Yet when Jesus takes a back seat to Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, then you you do have a problem. You do have a problem. And really, this problem is not just confined to holidays. This is a daily problem where people let all sorts of things eclipse the place of the Lord in their life. Again, holidays actually aren't that special to us as Christians because we are to remember and live in light of Christ every single day. So it's really not a special day. Every day is like this. Christ is to be the sun in the solar system of our lives around which everything else revolves. But for so many people, Christ is like a comet. He comes by every few years. He burns brightly, but for most of the time, He's a distant, faint light in their lives. Their devotion and and affections lie elsewhere. This is a problem even some Christians have. They miss Jesus. They fail to know Him, to, to love Him, to worship Him, to live rightly before Him. wouldn't be the first time, though, last Sunday, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, we came to the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem. And there was this huge crowd of people, and they're all cheering Him on, singing in praises, acclaiming Him to be the Messiah. And it was great at first, But all of these people missed Jesus. They were cheering Him on Sunday, but then killing Him by Friday. And here were all these people who at one point, they were really excited about Jesus. They loved Him. They sang songs about Him. They were just praising His name. Yet days later, when He failed to meet their expectations, they rejected Him. They failed to understand who Jesus really was. They failed to understand what Jesus really came to do. They followed Jesus for the wrong reasons. And when they weren't getting out what they thought they would get out of following Jesus, they just left. They they were over it. They moved on. And you know what? It still happens today. People still miss Jesus just like that today. And that should give you pause. How can that be? How can people miss Jesus? How can people go from being so excited over Jesus to being just dead cold, a little while later. How does that happen? And are you immune? It's fair to ask, has this happened to you? Have you maybe grown cold to the Lord without even necessarily knowing it? I personally have encountered over the years several people, they call themselves Christians and they genuinely believe that they're right with God because they do Christian things, like they go to church, they sing the songs, maybe they even give a little money. But upon further discussion, it becomes they're so or it becomes evident they're so utterly clueless about even just the gospel who God is, who Christ is, what he really came to do, the significance of that, why something that happened 2000 years ago to this Jewish carpenter should affect our lives today. They have no idea. They're just they're just basically cultural Christians. They are really like the crowds during the triumphal entry. They get close to Jesus. They say they love Jesus. They they can even pass as his followers on the surface on the surface but they're not banking in the true gospel. They're not counting on it for their salvation. And many just, they're not born again. They're unsaved. And for many people, when they don't get out of Christianity what they thought they would, they just end up leaving. Their heart grows cold, they get apathetic, and eventually people just, they leave. Sadly, Jesus told us to expect this, Matthew 7:13:14 for example, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it, but the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are just a few who find it. It's so sad, but there are so many people who go through life and they think they're Christians, but they're really just cultural Christians. they think they're safe and secure because they're around the Lord. But being around Jesus and following Jesus are two different things. And Jesus himself said that during this age in the church, the tares would grow amongst the wheat, which is to mean that false believers would exist right next to true believers, even sometimes in the same pew. And the thing about tares is they look just like wheat on the outside until the end, till harvest. Then it becomes evident what they really were, and they're thrown out. All this goes to say, on this Easter, don't miss the real Jesus. Don't miss the real Jesus. Today on Easter Sunday, millions of people will go to churches across America, but yet so many will continue to miss Jesus. God and the Gospel don't really reside in their heart. Jesus has no impact on their lives. Easter, just another holiday. They don't get what it's all about. They don't, they don't get why it even matters. They're just kind of clueless. And church, I I don't want that to be you. I don't want you to be on the outside looking in. I don't want you to be clueless. I don't want you to miss Jesus. It's instead my job to fill you in. And I can't choose your path for you, but I can. I must show you the way, point you to the real Jesus, and also point out danger behind missing him. And there is a real danger in the church today, especially in America Spreading like a spiritual disease, it's it's taking people out of the race. And the result is that more and more people who fill many pews in many churches, they they end up missing Jesus. And the affliction I'm talking about, to be specific for this morning, is spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. It's like a plague. It's infected every church in America such that more and more people, they they go, but they, they don't really care about God. They have no interest in the things of the Lord, no passion for following Jesus. Their hearts have grown cold and indifferent. For a couple days of the year, they might take Jesus off his shelf, dust him off, and pretend to be his follower. But the rest of their year, they, they don't really care. They're not really concerned about following him, whatever that means. They just don't care. You can compare or think of spiritual apathy like gutters in a bowling alley, in a bowling lane. It's a trap. And if you fall in, you're going to miss your target completely. And if you do fall in, it's so easy to stay in. And it's so hard to get out. And naturally, if you're serious about bowling, it's all about avoiding the gutters. Just don't fall in the gutters and you'll hit something. Yet all too too many Christians, it's like they're bowling blindfolded. They're unaware of the danger spiritual apathy presents. And many find themselves already trapped. But that's why, specifically with our time this morning, I want to help you in your pursuit of the real Christ by exposing you to the real danger of spiritual apathy. I want to point out for you where the danger lies, telling you what it looks like, why it traps people, and how to avoid it. Isn't that something you'd want to know? I mean, if if you think about it, think about How many people missed Jesus when he was on the planet? So many people just missed him. He was right under their nose. And it still happens today. Wouldn't you at least want to know, like, well, how does that happen? How do people get to that point where they're around him, but they end up missing him? Wouldn't you want to know? And indeed, we want to be more aware of of one of the major traps that takes people out of the race. And spiritual apathy is, is near the top of that list. And so this morning, we'll just take a one-week break from the Gospel of Mark for a little more of a topical message. But I want to give you the sketch of spiritual apathy, the source of spiritual apathy, and then the solution for spiritual apathy. That, that's our, our game plan this morning. The sketch of spiritual apathy, the source of spiritual apathy, and then the solution for spiritual apathy. And just so I hope that by shedding light on this real problem, Your eyes will be open. You'll be able to guard your own heart from growing cold to the things of the Lord. Instead, you'll always be able to be on fire for Him. And so let's begin with this. Number one, the sketch of spiritual apathy. What what does that even mean, spiritual apathy? And here, this whole time, we're going to be talking about professing Christians, non-Christians, that's a whole different story. But among Christians, apathy its a case of a cold heart. Your heart has grown cold to the things of the Lord. You're indifferent. You're uninterested in God. The spiritually apathetic person has lost most or all of their interest in God. Their desire has run dry. Their passion for the Lord, that's that's kind of long gone. You know, maybe when they first became a Christian, they could be described as being on fire for the Lord. It was all exciting. This new faith, this new identity as a Christian, it was exciting. But those those days are, are gone. The fire is gone. Now it's just a few dimly burning embers. Now, don't confuse the spiritually apathetic person with the spiritually ignorant person. Because oftentimes these people, they they know the facts of the Bible. They've read the Bible. They know about Jesus. They know all the details. They've been in church. They know all the right things to say. If you handed them a sound doctrinal statement, they'd sign off on that. Sure, no problem. It's just that the truth of God's Word has no real bearing and impact on their lives. And they may still believe with their minds, but their hearts live somewhere else. And when people get this way, what, what happens next? What happens to them? Well, some end up just leaving the church. And why not? Why not? If your heart's not in it, why why are you wasting your time? There's no interest there. There's, there's no point. I mean, they know as a Christian, they're supposed to like read the Bible and pray and sing and fellowship and go to church. But... No, if, if you had to ask them, they really don't want to, In the Bible it's just it's boring and they don't really understand it anyway and they can get through maybe like five minutes of prayer before they get distracted, it's kind of pointless and you know they don't really like to sing at church and the people there are just weird anyway. It's just not their social circle. And they're not getting anything out of church so so why bother? And this person might still retain a loose identification with Christianity. They, you may say, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but long gone are the days of, of just trying seriously to, to live it out or understand. Other spiritually apathetic people, though, they stay in the church. Even though their hearts have grown cold, they lack the thought of being religious or being thought of as religious. Maybe they're raised a certain way and they feel a strong obligation to go to church. Or maybe all their friends and family go to church. But whatever the case, they continue to to attend, but their heart just isn't in it. They're they're not there. They're checked out, even though they're they're warming a pew. And the result for such people is that a cold, dead orthodoxy replaces a true love for the Lord. And that is a problem. They go through all the motions, come to church, sing the songs, even give a little money. But when they're alone at home, Nothing's going on. There's no living and active relationship with the Lord. There's no passion to read and to study God's Word. There's no desire to commune with God in prayer. Definitely no zeal to evangelize. It's just they're indifferent. This is spiritual apathy. That's what it looks like. This is spiritual apathy. And don't think you're immune. Even solid godly believers can fall prey to spiritual apathy. You know, in the New Testament... One of the best churches around fell to spiritual apathy. See, Ephesians, the church in the city of Ephesus, one of the best in its day. When Paul wrote his letter to them, Ephesians, he commended them for their great faith and their love for all the saints. They're like the best church around. But just a mere 30 years later, in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself rebukes the church of Ephesus. And it's not because they had a bad doctrinal statement. They still had the, all the right doctrine, it's just they lost their love. He says in Revelation 2.4, he says, But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Spiritual apathy struck and sidelined the Ephesian church from the race, and it still happens today. And that next begs the question, well, how does that happen? How does spiritual apathy strike and, and take people out? How can it afflict even real believers, solid Christians? How how does it happen? So secondly, let's talk about the source of spiritual apathy. The source of spiritual apathy. The Bible speaks of many potential sources of spiritual apathy, but first on the list has to be sin. I mean, nothing throws a wet blanket on your fire for the Lord like sin, like unchecked sin in your life. Sin comes with built-in byproducts. If you sin and you don't deal with it, then comes guilt. If you continue not to deal with it, then comes spiritual depression. And if you leave it alone, apathy and indifference are right around the corner. Sin kills true joy. It's the enemy of our souls. And if you give it refuge in your heart, then it's going to suck the life out of you. And it will make you cold. And again, even true believers are not immune. Though you might be saved, you still have the sinful flesh complete with its sinful thoughts and desires. And look, now you're called to wrestle against the flesh. You are to walk by the Spirit so that you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. But if you let your guard down, and we all do from time to time, we're still sinners. And especially if you let sin have a nice, cozy, secret place in your heart then it won't be long before you find your spiritual energy drained away. Sin is like a leech, and it just clings to your heart, and it sucks away your spiritual blood. And if you just leave it there unchecked, then your zeal for the Lord is going to wither away. What do you expect? David, in the Old Testament, he learned this lesson the hard way. For a little period, he gave sin a safe little refuge in his heart. And the result... Not, not that long after was spiritual apathy, decay, indifference. Psalm 32. We're not looking at any one text this morning. we we'll bounce it around. But Psalm 32, he says this, verses 3 and 4. He says, and this is him reflecting and repenting of his sin. But he said, when I kept silent about my sin. Kept it kind of secret. He says, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality. Drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Just his physical and spiritual energy just sucked the life out of him. Because he knew the Lord, but he was harboring this sin. And if that's the case, if sin is the culprit to your spiritual indifference, the solution I mean, hopefully it's kind of obvious just repent. I mean, just give it up. He says in the next verse, But I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. God just took it all away. That's that's what He does, what He promises to do. And in Psalm 51, David similarly says that the Lord restored the joy of His salvation. So look, have you lost that joy? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Join the Lord. And if in your heart you're thinking, yeah, you know, a little bit, I, I think I might have. Well, then you have to ask yourself, are you maybe harboring some sin in your life? And maybe you're not. Maybe you're, you're on top of repenting. We need to daily, we, we're always sinning, but you're repenting all the time. But maybe you are harboring some sin in your life. Maybe you have some secret sin nobody knows about, but it's captured your heart. And if so, it's, it's really no surprise that you've lost some of that joy and fervor for the Lord. The solution for you, it's very simple. Repent. You need to see your sin. Acknowledge it before the Lord. Shine the spotlight on it. Don't give it that safe little spot in your heart anymore. But turn away from it. Seek God's forgiveness. And as you do so, you will find His promised forgiveness. And He will restore to you the joy of your salvation. But that's the first source of spiritual apathy that that affects a lot of people. It's sin. Often a hidden sin in their heart. I can point out a second source of spiritual apathy or indifference. For some people, it's distraction. Just distraction. And this one's so sly. Sin comes in the front door. Distraction comes in the back door. Unaware. And here's how it works. Distraction comes when you're engaged in non-sinful activities things that aren't even necessarily wrong, like you know watching TV, playing some games, doing a hobby, or even things you're commanded to do, like work, spend time with your family, so on. These things are, are not wrong, but when you prioritize them above the things of the Lord, they become a problem. And, and these are good things. Some of them can even be counted as a blessing, but if they eclipse and crowd out your, all of your devotion to the Lord... Even blessings can become curses. Let's give you an example. Let's just say you grew up and kind of poor, didn't have a lot of money, never had a TV. Now you're a little older, you've got a little money. You think, you know, I've always wanted just like a big TV with all the channels. It's not, it's not wrong. It's not. You say that and you think, you know, I've never had something nice like this, and now I can. I think it'd be nice. I think it'd be fun, and I think it'd even help me to remember like how God has, has actually blessed my life and been good to me. Sure. And look, TV, not evil in and of itself. It's not. But what if I just had a crystal ball, looked into the future? I don't know, had a prophecy, whatever, you know, looked into the future somehow and just told you that if you get that TV, with all the channels, for you, it'll suck you in. And over the next year, you're going to end up watching four to five hours of TV a day, even more on the weekends. You'll neglect your family, you'll neglect God. Your Bible reading will go pretty much to zero. You'll try and read and pray a little bit before bedtime, but you stayed up so late watching TV that you're so tired you just fall asleep. And after a short while, your devotion to the Lord will grow cold. And now you'll find yourself struggling with a whole bunch of new sins that you never did before because now you're spiritually weak. And if you knew all that was going to happen, would you still get the TV? Would you see it as a blessing or maybe as a curse? Or at least something to be very careful of. You need to guard your heart. The TV is not the issue. You're the issue. Your heart is the issue. And a second way many Christians become spiritually apathetic is that they let the things of the world, even good things, like your job or your family, but they let it capture their heart and take top billing, top spot, and crowding out the Lord. And again, these things don't have to be sinful. They can be good things, working hard at your job, spending time with your family. But if anything takes precedence over your relationship with God, if you find yourself neglecting God over them, then spiritual apathy its not far behind. You can't let anything else capture your heart's affections. And if it has, you need to replace it back with with the Lord. You're called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength, not 90 percent, not 10 percent, all. And we're also called to guard ourselves from falling in love with the things of the world. and that's what you need to do. I, I get it it, it, becomes, it becomes very easy to be distracted when life is hard. I get that. It's happened to me. No one's immune here. Well life gets tough. the Christian life is often depicted as a race, a marathon with Christ-likeness as our goal, but it's a long race, isn't it? And it's oftentimes on the road marked with suffering. Life, Life can get hard. There's trouble, persecution. And when the race gets hard, Christians can easily get weary. You just get tired. You're tired of always being on guard. Tired of always having to try so hard. Tired of being persecuted. And then, distraction is just... It just give me some distraction. I just want to be distracted. It's just so so much, so hard. But you must be careful. You know, every year, you can run an official half marathon at Disneyland. I may mentioned this before. We have friends do it every year. I still, that's still too much running for me. Even a half marathon. I'm like ah, I don't want to do it. But you, part of the marathon is right through the park, and of course, comes with free admission afterward. Although you'd kind of probably be nasty after that. I'm not sure if you'd want to. Go to Disneyland after a half marathon. But you run right through the park, running past all the rides and attractions. Sounds pretty cool, but let's pretend you're on this race. You've been training. You've never done anything like this before, never completed a race. It's just a big deal to you. You want to finish. It's, a, it's kind of like a marker in your life. And so even though you're running through Disneyland, all these rides and attractions, all the fun stuff, but you don't care. Your heart is firmly set just finishing this race, you want to finish. It's so important to you. So you're not distracted. All the stuff going around you is so fun, but your heart, you're set. Your eyes are locked in on that that finish line, and you don't care what's going on around you. You just, I just got to run this race. You're not distracted. But what if you get a stomach cramp, and a really bad one, and you're healthy, your body's fine. It's not like an injury, but it just really hurts to run. That happened to you? You're running. It just really hurts, and so what do you do? You want to finish, but now it's like it really hurts. There's now a real cost to finishing this race, and now all of a sudden, because of this pain, all these rides and attractions look actually a lot more appealing. Now it's like I could just take a little break. You know, they they give you like eight hours to finish this thing. It's only a half marathon. Like I could I could take a break. This race is not going anywhere. It's just it's going a few rides. It'll probably I'll probably feel better after, probably help my stomach, you know, just feel better. And so, so you stop running. You take a break. Enjoy yourself. And you get distracted. And a lot of people do this with the Christian life. They life gets hard. It is not an easy race. But they when they, when it gets hard, they, they just accept the distraction. They'll take anything instead of counting on the Lord. When when the times get tough, that's when we need the Lord the most. But instead, they take the easy route, and it is easy, just, just distract me, and they find out the race is gone. And some, some Christians, they get so sidelined, they take a perpetual break, and they never get back in the race. They're out. Some people even come to hate the race, and they're bitter against it. Paul encountered people like this. i read for you Philippians 3, verses 17 through 20. Philippians 3, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So in other words, like, hey, follow us in this race. We're on this race together. He says, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Some people, they were on this race, but they, they call it quits, and now they're enemies. Verse 19, he says of them, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, their simple desires, and whose glory is in their shame. And he says, who set their minds on earthly things. They set their minds on earthly things. These people, they, they started this race, but they're so distracted by the things of the world, it took them out of the race, and now they've become just like the world. And they've abandoned Christ. But he says in verse 24, our citizenship though, it's in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is like for us it's different. Yeah, the race is just as hard for us, but we're not living for this world. We're living for the next. Where Christ is. And that's where you need to set your mind. When, when times get tough and the troubles and trials come, you don't need distractions. You need more of Christ. You need to set your mind... Not on things of the world, but on the things of the Lord, on heaven. That's what will get you through the difficult times in the race, realizing that this is just now before then, before eternity. And so much more is coming. The point is, from sin to distraction, there's some major culprits that lead people to be spiritually apathetic. They they take their devotion away from from God. And that's why the New Testament is so filled with these admonitions to to be on guard, watch out. Be sober minded. Set your mind on the things above because it's so easy to fall into sin or distraction and you will grow cold. Now, there's one last source of spiritual apathy I want to talk to you about. I'm sure there's many more, but one more I want to point out. Much more fundamental among some people, not all, of course, but some. And a third source of spiritual apathy is false conversion. False conversion. For some people, their hearts are cold toward God because they're still dead. Like a corpse. They're cold to the touch because they don't have any spiritual heartbeat. They have no pulse. They've never been made alive. And you were like, hey, is that even is that possible? Like, does that really happen? Yeah, it happens. Jesus said in Matthew 7, that on the final day, there would be many, not a few, he says many people who would claim to be his followers. They call him Lord They think they're going to heaven, but they don't get in because their their faith was never real. They were never alive. They didn't know him. They were around him, but they weren't his followers. They were phonies. They were false disciples. They're still dead in their sins. And so it happens. How does this happen? Well, sometimes you can have people, they even believe the right things on paper but they're following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They don't get what discipleship is all about. They were initially attracted to Christianity because of something superficial. They believed that being a Christian would provide them with something they wanted. Maybe a nice life. Maybe fire insurance from hell. Maybe a cure for their addictions. Maybe just an emotional high. And with such people, emotions often run high at first. When they come to Jesus, it's often with some very emotion-driven experience. Like a youth camp, a special meeting. They've got the loud music, which I'm not opposed to, but loud music, a message that tugs on their heartstrings. The point is their emotions are worked up. And in that moment, Jesus becomes attractive to them. He's, he's going to fill the emptiness in their life. He's going to make them feel better. They just, their Life is hard. They feel bad. He, he makes them feel good. And so they get excited about Jesus. They're like the seed sown on the rocky ground. And they immediately receive the word with joy. But they have no root. They spring up. Christ is exciting, but they have no roots. Their faith is not rooted in the truth of God's word. They've not built their house on the solid rock of the gospel, but on the sandy shore of emotion. And you know what happens next. Those emotions always wear off. They always well. You can't keep that high up forever. Those emotions wear off in time. Life goes on. There's trouble. Being a Christian isn't leading to the rosy life they thought it would. Jesus isn't meeting all of their expectations. He's not making life that much happier. He's not doing for them what they thought he would do. Their troubles aren't going away. And now their emotions are gone. So what's holding up their supposed faith? Not Nothing. Nothing. The fire dies down. Then comes spiritual apathy, indifference, and burnout. And for some of these people, not all, but some, they eventually give up on following Jesus altogether. And they're out of the race, so to speak. But the problem with such people is that they were never saved to begin with. They were never made new or born again. They never fully apprehended and submitted to the truth of God. They, they were never really committed to, to being a disciple and what everything that means of Christ. You know, you can warm up a corpse by bringing it close to a fire, but just because it's warm to the touch doesn't mean it's alive. You've got to get the heart pumping again for that to happen. You need new life. You need resurrection. You can probably see the Easter tie-in now for everything I'm saying, but... This leads to the final point, the solution for spiritual apathy. The solution for spiritual apathy. And the ultimate solution, really for everyone, at one point or another, for all of us, the solution to this is new birth. You need genuine salvation. You have to have the fire in your own heart. You have to be changed from the inside out. and all centers on Jesus. You have to ask yourself, you you claim to be a Christian, why did you decide to follow Jesus? You know, all those years ago, or maybe just last week, whenever it was, why did you do it? Why did you say, I, it sounds like a good idea. I'm going to follow this guy Jesus. I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to be a Christian. Why? What led you to that decision? What did you think he was going to do for you? Were you simply raised as a Christian? haven't really thought much about it. Were you hoping that following Jesus would be your ticket to a nice middle-class life. Maybe that being religious would make you feel less guilty for some of the bad things you've done. Or maybe you believe because you're just desperate for some help in your marriage or you want your kids to be raised morally. These aren't, these aren't bad, but they're all the wrong reason for following Jesus. Remember I told you earlier about the crowds surrounding Jesus as He entered Jerusalem, the Triumphal Entry, They were cheering him on. They were singing him praises, literally. But they all ended up abandoning him. And why is that? Because they failed to rightly grasp who he was, what he came to do, and and the right response to that. They had these wrong expectations for for what they would get out of it. Not what he said, but what they wanted. And when he didn't meet their expectations, well, they're, they're done with him. And why did you follow do you really get who Jesus was, what he came to do? You've probably heard before, Jesus was God in the flesh, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior, the Messiah. But why on earth would God come to earth in the form of a Jewish carpenter? I mean, it just sounds so bizarre. Why, why would that happen? It's not so bizarre when you realize that God, for, for, since the beginning, has been promising to come to his people. Why would God need to do that? Why would He need to come to, to His people? Well, because of His great love and compassion. You see, right after creation, we're talking about the beginning. After the very first sin, all mankind was plunged into rebellion against God. And our very natures were corrupt. Such that now, what comes out of our hearts? It's not righteousness. It's sin. We're just sin factories now. That's, just, that's how, who we are. We're born... Fallen sinners who, by nature, oppose things of the Lord. So, look, forget spiritual apathy. The Bible says we're born spiritually dead. That's the real problem. Of Ephesians chapter two, verse one. What does that even mean, though? Spiritual death? What are you talking about? We have to realize that biblically, death never means going out of existence. Rather, death is more akin to separation in the Bible, and spiritual death speaks of us being separated from God. Our relationship was cut off between us and the Creator because of our sin and our rebellion. That's not a good thing. Because we will still know God, but only in judgment. Because of His holiness and righteousness, He must judge. And we're cut off. It's not good for us. It's like we have cut ourselves off from a loving relationship with our God that's only going to lead to our doom. But that's why God promised to come. And that's why He came in Jesus to rectify that. If spiritual death is akin to separation from God, then what is spiritual life but reconciliation with God? And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. To reconcile us to God. Romans chapter 5, verses 8-10. through 10. You may know it. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Jesus came to Earth to die on the cross for a reason—to stand in our place, who's dying for us. And in His death, He experienced a separation too. Jesus was made sin, so to speak, on our behalf. He was made to bear our sin, such that He was separated from the Father's love, and He underwent the Father's wrath—that that was that was ours. That He took it for us, so that we might be reconciled. Standing between us and God is our sin, but Jesus takes that out of the way on the cross. He he removed that barrier so that we can be reconciled to God. But it doesn't stop there because Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't just die, but He also rose. After enduring the full wrath of God on the cross, He rose to new life, to glorified life. And it's because of that that He's now able to offer us that same new life that same eternal life, resurrected life. If our real problem is spiritual death, then what do we need? We need spiritual life. We need reconciliation. We need resurrection. Life from death. That's what it is. Now, side note, don't get me wrong, the Bible clearly talks about a physical resurrection of our bodies that will take place at the end of the age. Physical resurrection, that's the answer for physical death. At physical death, that's when our cursed bodies are separated from our redeemed souls. But physical reconcil- physical re- resurrection, they're reconciled. Body and soul are returned and reconciled together. So we affirm that, of course. But the Bible also speaks about, in a sense, a spiritual resurrection. And that's really just akin to new birth. We're just talking about new birth. Romans 6, verses 4 and 5. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. We we die with Jesus to sin, but we rise with Jesus to new life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And he says, Now all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Jesus, by virtue of his death and resurrection, He has the ability to deal with your death by giving you resurrection. By giving you new life. And this new life comes to you as a gift. You can't make yourself born again, can you? I mean, can a corpse bring itself back to life? You don't have that power. You can't do that. You must receive this new life as a gift. And it comes, thankfully, by God's grace, a free gift. He gives it to you for free. And this is where now the right response to Jesus comes and for the right reasons. John chapter 5, verse 21 says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to those whom He wishes. It's in His hands now. He has the power to give life. So how do you receive it? How do you receive this new life from Jesus? How do you receive the gift? probably know the answer. Now it's through faith. Through faith. Romans 10.9, you know the verse. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You've heard that before, but what's that verse really saying? That, that's a powerful verse. You ever stop and think, like, what's that actually saying? So you believe, not just in your mind, but in your heart. Talking about your spirit, your spirit, Your soul. That God actually raised Jesus from the dead. Think about that. He actually raised Him from the dead. What does that imply and mean? It means you believe that. Really, it means you believe He's the answer. You are believing He really is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. He's the only sacrifice for sinners. He's the only one who can give you this new life. He's the only one who can deal with your sin problem. He's just the only one. You believe that if you believe that God really wrote, raised him from the dead, and if, if you believe that, if, of course you're going to confess him as Lord. And that's not just a casual statement. Yeah, Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord. No, this is a, this is a life, heart, and just commitment. This is just a, a whole change. You forsake sin. Sin is no longer Lord in your life, but you, you confess him. He is functionally in all in all respects, he is Lord. From henceforth, you say he, he's my master. He's my Savior. He's my source of life and joy. And you don't follow Him because He gives you an emotional high or because you want your kids to turn out right. You follow Him because He's Lord. That's it. He's just, He's Lord. I'm going to follow the Lord. He, he did this for me. How can I not follow Him? Now, if you get this point, you understand, and you rightly respond. God promises He'll make you new. They'll even change your desires, your heart, and give you a new one. You'll become a new creature. And the point is, there's your solution to spiritual apathy. That's it. That's your solution, among other things, but certainly spiritual apathy. The point is, you need your heart to be beating again, and that only happens one way. You need a spiritual pulse. That only happens one way. It's by new birth that comes as a gift through your faith in Christ Christ. By God's grace. And then God puts the fire inside of you. The Spirit. God's Spirit inside of you. And then you, you have everything you need. To be passionate for the Lord, you have what you need. So if you came here this morning and you know, maybe you don't want to tell people, maybe you're embarrassed, maybe you're just you don't like to think about it. But in your heart, you know you lack a true love and a passion for the Lord. Just just ask yourself. And consider your heart. It's not wrong. We're told to examine ourselves, and that, that's a good thing. But have you missed the real Jesus? Perhaps. Do you, do you really know, believe in Him as Lord? You're you firmly convinced God raised Him from the dead. Everything that means, and you give Him your life, that He died and rose for you. It's your only way to real peace and life and joy. It's the only answer to all of your real problems in life. So, so, do that if you haven't. Ask God to open your heart and to to change your heart, and He will. Now, briefly and lastly, for the rest of you, I, I know I know most of you know the Lord, but some of you may have come in here thinking, and you hear all this, and you say, "Okay, you know, that, I, I agree. That sounds good." And I've done that. I, I believe in Jesus. I, I've truly confessed Him. I believe that firmly in my heart, and I know I'm saved. I, I really get that and believe that. But sometimes I still feel like my heart gets cold a little bit too. So so what do I do about that? And that's a perfectly legitimate question and concern because it happens. I told you before, even real believers can be afflicted with spiritual apathy. So what do you do? Well, hopefully now you already see really the, the same solution. If your faith is real, then you have the, the fire inside of you. You have that new nature that can't change. That that doesn't die out. But even that fire needs fuel to thrive. Even true believers need to stoke the flames in their heart from time to time. And you do that in the simplest form, just by remembering Jesus. You just go back and, and make it all just new and fresh again. You must continually remember and reapprehend. Everything he's done for you. You know, why, why do you think Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as this ordinance for us? He wants us remembering him, his death and resurrection, all the time. It really, as often as you eat and drink, because he knows you've got to do that several times a day. You really should be. That's the real reason you should be praying before meals, by the way. It's not just some little ritual. The way it started is that's our occasion to just remember him all the time. because That's what keeps the fire going. Remembering him, not just a little casual ritual like, Lord, bless the food, thanks. It has its root in that, that that passage to remember him as often as you eat and drink. That's what we should be doing. And Christ knows that as we recall and recognize who he is and what he's done for us, it's like throwing coals on the fire. Just throwing more coals on the fire. And that's what keeps the fire going or truly alive. Or rather, keeps it thriving, we should say. And going back to the beginning, that was Christ's message for the Ephesian church. Remember, he he rebuked them for leaving their first love. They didn't lose their love, but they left it. They had had got distracted by the worries of the world and the the pleasures of the world and even the persecutions of the world. They left their first love. Their fire was smothered. But what was his his word to them? He says in verse 5 of Revelation 2, he says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. In short, remember, repent, and renew. Now that's what you need to do as well. Remember where you came from, your identity in Christ, everything He's done for you, just, just keep it in the front of your mind. And then repent. If, if there is sin or, or worldliness or distraction, just get, get it away. Forsake it. And then renew. You renew your practical devotion to Him. And you do that by by tapping into all the means of grace He's given us. You know, time in the Word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, fellowship with the saints, corporate worship. These are not just chores for us. These are not even works that we do to please God. You only do those things if you want to do them. But as you do them, it's like God breathing oxygen into the fire of our hearts and it's just keeping us connected and in tune with Him. These are these means of grace we have to, to fellowship with him all the more, and to be on fire for him. So, if you've lost some of that passion, then you too need to remember, repent, and renew that devotion for him. Earlier, we read Romans five eight through ten, tells us about God's love for us, saving us, justifying us, reconciling us through Christ. But the next verse after that shows the foundation of our joy, Romans five eleven. Not only this, but we, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. That's got to be what we remember all the time. Not just on Easter. If this is the only day you remember this stuff. Of course, you're going to be cold the other 364 days of the year. Easter is not a one day holiday. Don't miss Jesus. Pray that God would open your eyes to see Him always, who who He is and what He has done. And remember Him and all of this all the time. God will fan the flames of your heart. You will leave spiritual apathy in the dust. And you will rise to just a new and, and just renewed worship and join the Lord. So let's resolve to do that together always. Not just on Easter, but every day. And perhaps for you, you use this day as your starting point to launch a life of remembering the Savior always. But, but never let that go. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Redeemer, we, we just want to pause and remember now. We, we need to remember you. This, this life is full of distractions, things that so easily capture our heart's affections. It's full of temptation leading us into sin, which also takes us out. Now, there are so many things that can take us away from, from You, but Lord, help us to remember and keep You in front of us all the time. It's what we need. And may we repent. If we have been captured by, by sin or distraction, worldliness, whatever it is, Lord, give us the grace we need, the Spirit within, to forsake forsake everything but You, to turn away from sin especially, but even, even sometimes good things in our life, to put them in their place by keeping you first and foremost all the time. Maybe remember, maybe we repent, and Lord, help us to renew our love and our affection for you all the time by remembering and by going to your word. You've given us your word that we might see you all the time. You've given us the privilege of prayer that we might commune with you. You've given us fellowship with the saints that we might help one another and draw closer to one another, that we might contribute to one another's heat and fire like like coals in a fireplace. And so we pray that we do this now by your your grace and strength. It's for your sake, it's for your glory. You're the God who's done everything for us. And how can we not? Give us us that continual grace now, Lord. And as we go from here, may we celebrate a very blessed Easter Sunday, but may every day be an occasion for us to to worship or rejoice and remember a Savior who died and rose for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.